Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will be in chapter 21 this morning. While you're turning there, just a couple of brief reminders. We continue to read through 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I hope that that is being a blessing for you. I hope it's encouraging you and giving you much food for thought in your mind and heart. And I hope that it's granting to you also good um, uh, content to talk to others about the, the Easter season and what Christ has done for us. Beginning this evening at 4.30, we will begin to host Walk with the Lamb. You'll see booklets like this as you come in the north entrance. I want to encourage you this evening to come 4.30 to 8.30. And then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the building will be open from 8.30 in the morning until 4.30, in, or excuse me, until 8.30 at night for you to be able to come and to walk through these stations uh, where we can remember, we can reflect, uh, we can spend some time meditating on the Lord and also enjoying and, and maximizing this season of the year. I also want to encourage you to pick up a stack of these cards and use them to invite people to Walking with the Lamb or as well Easter Sunday, our highest celebration of the year next week. And so this week will be full of great opportunities for you um, to be reflecting upon the Lord Jesus, for you to be engaging people with the gospel, inviting them to come with you, and participating as well. I almost forgot, Friday night is our Good Friday service. It'll be at 7 p.m. here in this uh, room. So plan to join us for these times. The Gospel of Matthew. I want to talk to you this morning on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Christ about a king's coronation, a king's coronation. And I want to begin by reading the first 11 verses of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, if you'll follow along as I read aloud. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? 
And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Would you join me and let's pray as we begin this message this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask in this season of remembrance of all that you have done for us and in celebration of all that you have provided for us. Father, let us not be caught up in the things that swirl around us, but grant to us by your grace and by the work of your Spirit to see clearly what is taking place in your kingdom in these passages and in our world and life today. Help us today, Father, to look through and to see Jesus because the Spirit of God is working in us and in this place. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A king's coronation. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Morocco, a country I had never been to, and a part of the world that I was mostly completely unfamiliar with. We spent seven days in country and were able to study the history of the country and much of the culture that had shaped the country. And one of the most intriguing things that we discovered about Morocco was it is a country that has been ruled by almost every other country uh, north of it except for itself. It's a country that's been ruled at different times by other countries in in North Africa, by countries of Western Europe, specifically France and Spain. And it's a country who, to a large degree, had lost its own identity in many ways until the king who ruled just before we had arrived or the generation before we had arrived, I should say, came to the throne. And that king had become a mighty warrior in the eyes of its country, had secured its freedom from the last kingdom that ruled it, and had warred in such a way to bring peace and prosperity to the country. But the king who was currently ruling while we were present was the son of the king who had secured that peace. And his father, who was hailed as a warrior and fought to win their freedom, as he handed the kingdom over to his son, wanted to usher in a rule of peace. And so the, the, the historical narrative that they shared in, in their teaching us was that when this king came to the throne, what he ushered in in the way he began his kingship was to celebrate the peace and the prosperity that the country would enjoy under his rule. And so many of the priorities that he initiated as, uh, as he entered into his kingship represented the way in which he intended to rule the country, to enjoy the peace and the prosperity. Now, you could get under the layers of that and see some other things, but this is kind of the defining narrative that they wanted to present to the people. And one of the things that came out of that was simply this, that a king's legacy is often determined by his coronation. What takes place when he enters his kingdom and introduces it to the people. The triumphal entry of Jesus 
marks the beginning of what we've understood as Holy Week. A week of leading up to the final week of Jesus' life all the way to the highest and the holiest celebration on the Christian calendar, what we consider to be Easter. It's the final week that includes his trial, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. And what we see in this week is Jesus' intentional plan to reveal himself, his coronation, if you will, of what's to come. And I want you to see today, and I want you to think about this throughout the week as you participate and as you give time and thought and intellect and and even the affections of your life this week to think about the things of God and to meditate on the work of Jesus Christ for you. I want you to see more clearly that Jesus is the Son of God who came to conquer sin and to rule as a king. You know, at the first reading of these 11 verses this morning, that might not be immediately what stands out to you. But I propose to you today that in the paradox of what took place in the first century as Jesus descended from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. That's exactly what he was doing. He was introducing his kingdom as it appeared in his coronation in these events. I want us to look at the paradox of the triumphal entry. The things that seem to be one thing while at the very moment are actually completely something different. And I want us to look at five paradoxes today of the triumphal entry, and I want us to see through them a lens to gain a clearer picture of Jesus and who he is as the Son of God who came as the perfect sacrifice for us. And so I present to you this morning five lenses to clarify how we see Jesus. The first lens I want us to look through is this paradox of the staging ground. The paradox of the staging ground where Jesus prepared for victory in a garden of communion. Jesus prepared for victory in a garden of communion. As Jesus entered or traveled southward to enter into Jerusalem, he stopped at the Mount of Olives to prepare for his entrance into the city. They all knew because of all that had taken place, this wouldn't be less than a hostile period of time. But what we'll see is that when Jesus pauses at the Mount of Olives, it will be an intentional pause. It will be a a place, if you will, where Jesus brings intentionality because of all that has and will take place in this last week. This is no ordinary place. For the Mount of Olives becomes a central location in the final week of Jesus' life. It's a place of preparation, which we see here. He pauses to prepare strategically for his introduction to the people by his entrance into the city. It's a place of rest. He and the the disciples will retreat to the Mount of Olives a number of times this week. And there he will teach them. He will fellowship with them. He will commune with the Father with them. He will pray alone 
as the disciples one by one fall asleep and fall away from the war that's taking place in a garden of communion. And ultimately Jesus will be arrested in this same garden on the Mount of Olives. You see, friends, the Mount of Olives is a critical staging ground for Jesus' preparation for the final week of his life. About a year after we first moved to this property at 51 Riverdale Road, I was sitting in my office, also known as the storage closet, right back here at that time. Um, and, And I got buzzed on the phone and said, Lane, there's a number of trucks parked in the back of the property that looked very suspicious and we had dealt with a lot of vandalism and just people not treating the property as anyone should treat any property and so I I was bound and determined that I was going to guard it and so man I busted out of this door and I went out the back door and I was ready to clear house I was going to run those vandals off back to the stench from which they came And as I threw the door open, I noticed something. There were seven or eight trucks lined up strategically, all backed in. And I know we who back in to a parking spot, we're we're there for more of a purpose, for a quick escape, you might say. Ask my wife, she'll tell you that one. And as I threw the door open, several of the doors on the truck flew open as well. And a number of men, uh, distinctively dressed, exited their vehicles and approached me. And my first thought was, so this is the way it's going to end, right here. <laughs> they were wielding vests and guns. Uh, and, and I thought, uh, I think I came to this party a little unprepared, definitely underdressed. But they extended their hand to introduce themselves, and they introduced themselves as law enforcement agencies who were staging for an operation that they were about to go. And all of a sudden, in that instant, I went from guardian to little kid. I wanted to go with them. (laughs) Can I get in the truck? Can I turn the lights on? Can I hit the siren? No, why don't you go back inside where you belong? And so we spent just a moment uh, exchanging pleasantries and I went back inside. A staging ground is a place to prepare for an assault, a place to prepare for an attack. It's it's a place to gear up and get pumped up. That's what a staging ground is all about. And, And most kings would stage their battles in front of their kingdom, maybe in the center of the city, in order to bolster their people's support. And, and as they came out, the people would begin to cheer, and, and they, would, they would wield their weapons and their swords, and, and they, would, they would wield their shields in order to show their strength and, and to pump themselves up. And then the cheers of the crowd would rise ever more, and, and, and the cheers would bring courage to the warriors as they left for war and as they left from that staging ground to enter into the campaign. But you see, Jesus had no earthly throne to bolster his campaign. Rather, it was a simple garden that became a staging ground for the Lord of all creation's campaign of redemption. That's the picture we see here in Matthew chapter 21. The Mount of Olives was hardly a confidence-boosting location of dominance. It was more of a garden of green thumbs, if you will. A place 
where the beauty of the earth gave more peace and tranquility than it did courage and valor. It was outside of Jerusalem. It was a place high up on a hill that looked over the city. And this is where Jesus chose to stage and prepare for his campaign. You see, Jesus' campaign was not one of dominance. It was one of submission and obedience. A proper staging ground, for sure. For Jesus' campaign was one of obedience to the Father. And friends, obedience to the Father is never bolstered by self-confidence. Obedience to the Father is always a matter of humbling oneself to obey His will and His work in His way. When Jesus staged the entrance of His kingdom, He located in a garden to commune in prayer and to submit His will fully to obey the Father and to come as a sacrifice for sin. The staging ground is where Jesus would pray, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That is the way he prepared to obey the Father. This first feature that makes this most likely a staging ground, and, and, and what would look most typically like the normal staging ground, was simply the number of people that were coming out to honor him. Matthew tells us that the crowd swelled, and they moved further from the city to get to him before he ever got to them. And as they greeted him long before he reached the city, he sent two disciples in, Matthew records, to take a donkey and her foal in order to enter the city. And this imagery, or this picture rather, provides a defining imagery for our second paradox this morning. The second paradox is in that defining imagery where Jesus rode a beast of burden to bring peace. A beast of burden to bring peace. He tells them to go in and you'll find a donkey there and with that donkey will be tied a colt. And so they brought the two donkeys and and they placed their cloaks on him for Jesus to be able to ride. Now, if you just read the text, one of the things you're going to notice is it sounds like Jesus rode two donkeys. That's kind of what Matthew makes it sound like. But to be clear, Jesus was not going to enter Jerusalem trick riding. We we should remember this, friends, that Jesus' entry was neither a campaign of a mighty warrior of valor in the way the world anticipated it, but neither was it a show of entertainment the way the world wanted to make it and has always wanted to make it. You see, what we see is that the donkey that was tied was the mother of a coal that or of a foal, excuse me, that was that had never been ridden more than likely. And and the reason that they both had to be brought is because the mother of this coal needed to lead him and to comfort him because he most likely had never been broken. And so for Jesus to ride on a donkey that was completely unprepared for any kind of royalty or for any kind of riding, let alone royalty in and of himself, is what Matthew and the gospel writers are pointing out to us here. 
He made a statement about himself and what he chose to enter in, but not like most expected. You see, kings ride horses that are uh, ornately arrayed for battle. They, they exude nobility and they are a majestic beast of valor and, and that conjures up a confidence for victory. But when Jesus introduced his kingship, he, he chose a beast of burden. In, in order to enter into Jerusalem. One scholar paints the contrast of this imagery so well for us here. And I want to read a, a small quote from his writing. He says that a donkey was the animal of a man of peace, used by a priest or a merchant or an eminent citizen. But the donkey that Jesus rode was no well-bred animal. It's specifically called a beast of burden, a lowly animal. A king on a donkey was almost a contradiction in terms. Though, of course, sometimes in times of peace, a king would use a donkey. That Jesus rode into the city in the way he did was a significant affirmation of his character and his purpose. The pilgrims might shout their acclaims and think of a king who would fight against the Romans and throw them out of the country. But Jesus viewed himself as a king of peace. That's a beautiful picture, friends, of the paradox we see of Jesus entering the city on a beast of burden that was not even trained to guide itself or to comfort itself but still dependent upon its mother to lead it in that way. You see, Jesus was intentional in the way he entered Jerusalem. And this is the defining imagery for us to understand that, uh, that this is what Jesus wanted us to see. Matthew tells us that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. That's why he quotes the prophet in his passage. And the imagery stands in stark contrast to the defining expectation of the people of that day, yea, even of today. You see, the donkey symbolized Jesus' coming in peace and that his would be a peaceful reign. Jesus entered Jerusalem as the humble king on a beast of burden to show that he would bear our burden for sin and that his kingdom would be a kingdom of peace. You see, friends, the way you see Jesus will determine what you believe he came to do and how it is that you respond to him in his work. And it causes us to pause and to press upon our own thinking, the, the, the presumptions that we make about our own faith in Christ and the assumptions we make about our Christianity. It causes us to ask questions like this. Are you looking for a Christianity that is well-branded? that makes a good showing in front of people, that you can be proud of, that's going to advance you in the eyes of others? Or will you look upon this humble King Jesus who bears your sin out of love to welcome you to God as the only one who is worthy of all praise and of all honor and of all glory? You can only hear the whispers 
of some of the people in the crowd in between their hallelujahs and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord turning to Bill or to Mary and saying, can you imagine they couldn't find any better uh, beast than this one? Couldn't they have found a better horse? Hallelujah, amen. I mean, have you seen what he's coming in on? It's like riding in on a convertible Yugo. You're not going to get respect from anybody. But that's what Jesus was saying to us. He and he alone is one who is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. The third paradox we see comes through the lens of misconstrued expectations. Misconstrued expectations. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The crowds were large and growing. They were overbearing and they were undeniable. And they were shouting praises to him by citing what we know of now as Psalm chapter 118. It was a hymn for them. In other words, it was a mantra for them at this celebration, at this season of the year that they were so familiar with. And in so citing that passage, they were proclaiming those things about him as he came. I mean, the people loved Jesus. They, they loved what he had, they had seen of him in the last three plus years of his earthly ministry. They loved the way he taught because it tells us in the scriptures that he didn't teach like the other religious leaders. He actually had authority in his teaching. He actually spoke as one who knew what he was talking about. They loved him because they had seen him heal the lame, give sight to the blind, make to walk the cripple. But all in the midst of that, the religious rulers hated him. And every cry of praise from the people stoked a burning ember of envy within the religious leaders. Many people believe that Jesus was the Messiah. There's no doubt about that, though their understanding of that was surely misconstrued, we will see as we continue in the, in the gospel writing. Their cheers were genuine, genuine and their hearts were hopeful. But their concept of what they were hopeful for and genuinely cheering for was likely for political victory and an earthly kingdom. And this is what Jesus is pressing against. This is the misconstrued expectation that Jesus clarifies for us here. You see, he's intentional to clarify our understanding. For Jesus entered Jerusalem during a week of Passover celebration. Probably he entered at the very time that not only thousands of people were coming into the city, but beyond the roar of the crowd and the cheers were the blattering of sheep and the, uh, uh, the, the loud noises of the animals who had been brought in for sacrifice as well. And they would be slaughtered and eaten as part of the Passover observant. And as one said, it's natural then that Psalm 118 were on the people's minds and the tongues of this occasion. You see, this wasn't just any day of the year. This was the biggest day of the year. And what Jesus is doing is he's using the practices of Passover to show how he is God's fulfillment of ultimate 
pass over. God never gave a sacrificial system to the people to save them, only to remind the people that he would be the one who saves And the New Testament is clear to tell us that the people always knew this. In the Old Testament, people didn't believe that when they came once a year and offered the best of their livestock, and when it died and the blood was shed and cast back upon the altar, they knew that that didn't actually remove their sin from them, but it only appeased for a time. That's why they continued year after year to bring their sacrifices, and the priests who were imperfect had to come time after time for their own sins as well as representing the sins of the people. And so it's not like they expected that this was actually forgiving them of their sin, but though they always knew this over a long time, might I say a great amount of familiarity. It's crazy how familiarity has a way of fooling us, doesn't it? They had likely forgotten the true meaning of all of this religious observance. And friends, when we look at the misconstrued expectations of that day, it causes us to ask ourselves today, has your familiarity with the practice caused any amount of cloudiness or confusion in you as to the true purpose of Jesus? Are you entering into a season of the highest celebration of our Christian faith with some measure of granting less value or worth to it than it is actually due? Has your faith for you become so routine and common that you fail to rightly honor Jesus as Savior and Lord? Oh, you appreciate that He is near to you. You're thankful for all that He does for you. But have you just paused to worship Him for who he is, because nothing makes him more worthy of our worship than that he is Jesus. Have you become so comfortable with him that you've come to see your Christian faith as something other than a whole life immersion of worship, that you are for him, not that just that he is here to do something for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died to atone for sin, to conquer death, and to rule as king of his eternal kingdom. Are you worshiping Jesus in a way that he and he alone is worthy of, not comparable to anything else in your life, not put beside or even along with anything else, but set apart as Christ, the Messiah of God, the Lord of all creation, the Savior who has come. The fourth paradox that we see today that provides for us the opportunity to clarify our understanding of Jesus is the lens of the cultural chaos And friends, in a cloud of confusion, Jesus as truth brings clarity and peace to life. Matthew tells us in verse 10 that when he entered, the whole city was stirred up. Not just those who were praising him, but the whole city was stirred up. And one question began to rise to the top. Who is this? 
Who is this? I mean, even those who were shouting hallelujah and praise be to uh, the Messiah, even some of them likely stopped speaking with their tongue and began to ask with their heart, who is this? I mean, it's just that moment when it kind of takes over, right? The energy and the excitement of Jerusalem was peaked for the highest festival of the year. In one of those moments, like when celebration takes over and chaos almost begins to ensue, you can envision the chaos of, of a city that's hosting the Super Bowl or the Olympics or the Final Four or the World Series. And when you walk into those crowds, just the confusion that can quickly escalate and the chaos that can take place. This is what is happening in Jerusalem. They were stirred up and there was great chaos from the excitement of the celebration. And for many, the excitement was real and genuine, but for many more, it was just simply getting swept up in what was taking place. And in the midst of all of it, that confusion can become dizzying at best, but it can also become a shroud that cloaks the evil agendas of others to deceive those who are in the midst of the crowd. Jerusalem, friends, was a city of chaos. That's the way you should understand where Jesus is entering into. It was aroused in an energy of high celebration, but it was churning with the tensions of warring kingdoms. And in the midst of the excitement and the chaos, Matthew records that one question arose. Who is this? Friends, one great opportunity that arises from chaos in the culture over Jesus and over Christianity is that people begin to ask questions. And those questions for us become opportunities to answer with a faithful witness. We know statistically from studies done many different times that Christmas and Easter are two of the easiest times of the year to engage in spiritual conversations with people. Now that may be predominantly because our culture has been predominantly Christian or defined greatly in Christian terminology. But friends, and I can't promise you that that will always be the case, it surely seems to be slipping but I can tell you this, I do believe it's still the case because studies continue to show the openness of people to the claims of Jesus Christ, to the truth of his words, not by grand displays or massive events, but by personal invitation, by personal conversation, and by personal testimony. Listen, friends, I know you think sometimes if we want to make a big impact on a lot of people, we need to make a big production out of all of it. But I'm telling you, the productions wane every time and the crowds just kind of sway away. But one-on-one -on -one or one-on-a-few, when a Christian shares a faithful testimony, friends, it cuts through the chaos of everything going around because the truth of God's Word with the power of His Spirit cuts right to the heart. That's what Hebrews tells us, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, divide, dividing even joint and marrow, soul and spirit. The faithful witness 
of a Christian in the midst of a culture in chaos? And can I just argue that we specifically in southwest Missouri have for at least the last seven years been a culture in massive transitional shift? Chaos has ensued in many instances, but let me tell you there is one glorious revelation that cannot be shrouded under the darkness of Satan's chaos and confusion, and that's the brilliance of Jesus Christ and the truth of who he is. And it will always matter most when you, in conversation, as a faithful witness, share with others to address this question that the world is dying for an answer for. Who is this? Who is this? And I ask you today, have you been swept up in the chaos of everything that has swarmed around you, maybe in your life, in your workplace, in our own culture, in some of the argumentations that are taking place, the interesting thing about social media today is we don't just get caught up in our immediate culture. We get caught up in a quote-unquote, and I will argue, a completely fabricated culture at large. We think that the conversation that's trending is the most important conversation of the day. It's not. It's not. Have you gotten caught up in that? Have you gotten overwhelmed with just the voice of the darkness in this world just telling you how damned things really are? It's easy. As a matter of fact, it's so easy that psychology is giving it labels now. Or is the truth of Jesus Christ cutting through the chaos of the culture at large of the culture around your life to bring the truth of God and the person of Jesus Christ to bear upon you, upon the way you're thinking, the way you feel, the way you live, the way you perceive everything that is, the way that you share your hope in Him. Friends, the Christian witness is most potent when it is humbly spoken into chaos and confusion to clarify this, that Jesus is Savior and Lord. He is truth in an age of chaos. Has that chaos caused your fervor for Him to cool? Has the fear of the conversation creating that chaos caused you to cower in some way in fear of what might happen if you were to speak in some way counter to the defining conversation of the world. Take joy in Christ and speak a clarifying word of truth to show where your hope is found and an anchor that is sufficient for any who will put their hope and trust in Him. Friends, don't let cultural chaos define the narrative of your life. The fifth lens that we see, or the paradox that provides the limb, are the testimonies 
Jesus is the Son of God who died to bring peace with God. Finally, it tells us that the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He is hailed as a great prophet. And, and what greater uh, compliment could there be given to him? That, that they put him next to the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah and good grief, like the greatest of all. He's like Moses. I, I, I mean, listed as one of the greats would be great unless, of course, you were more than just the great. They proclaimed Jesus as a great prophet, but Jesus was far more than a great prophet. Friends, do you know which defining religion in the world today accepts Jesus as a great prophet? Islam acknowledges that Jesus was one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. So for you to join in the crowd's cries is to do little more than any other religion that ultimately denies that he is the son of God. You see, Jesus is not just a great prophet. Jesus is the true goat. He's the lamb of God. And by goat, I mean greatest of all time. Consider the testimonies of the ages. The gospel writers give anywhere from one-third to one-fourth of their content to the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew, the gospel we are in today, gives 25% of all of his narrative to the last week of Jesus' life. He's saying to us in his record, this is why he came. The centurions and the guards who were charged to carry out the sentence upon Jesus, who are on record as mocking him, as beating him, as scourging him, and then as driving the nails that would crucify him, look upon him in his death and states, truly, this was the Son of God. Look through these testimonies, friends, and see clearly who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him for a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. A great prophet is only a, comp a compliment for those who were prophets. Jesus is the Son of God who died to give peace with God for all who would believe in Him. He is worthy of all your worship and of all your faithful witness. What priority will you give to Jesus this week in your time, in your thoughts, in your energies, and with all your attentions? Let me conclude in this way. A crown will be raised this week in which Jesus will receive his ultimate coronation. It will not sparkle with jewels. Rather, it will pierce with thorns that mock and ridicule and that heap shame. And that piercing will cause blood to flow. And that blood 
will be the blood that is shed for your sin that will wash away your shame and your guilt, that will cleanse your heart and cleanse your conscience. And it causes us to stop and ask, is the guilt, the shame, and the condemnation of your sin washed white by Jesus' blood? Are you ready for the greatest week ever known to humanity? Have you repented of your sins and confessed that Jesus is Lord and received him as your Savior? If not, today I give you the opportunity to do just that. God invites you to receive his forgiveness and to accept him into your life. Let's pray.